Let's turn for the last time to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. 2 Timothy 4, 16 to 18. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through the message might be fully proclaimed, through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there are times when people let you down. I let you down. And I suppose there have been those rare times when someone has also let me down. We are disappointed in one another's behavior. We expected Christian people in particular to stand by us at a time of need. They didn't. Maybe we later came to understand and appreciate their reason for keeping their distance, but we might still feel a little sad. Paul is referring here to one particular event in his life, either when he was on trial uh, a year or two earlier for his evangelism and his preaching, or he's referring to the first stage of the present trial that is still going on. Whichever it was, Paul's own natural supporters didn't turn up. When he was brought from prison to the court, and he looked around from the dock to see who was there, there wasn't a single familiar face to be seen. Paul was on his own. There was no advocate to speak up for him, no character witness to say a word in his defense. Every single Christian, without exception, even those closest to Paul, were notable by their absence. So here again, as we saw this morning, here again is the perplexity of the Roman church and its failure to minister to Paul in prison. I hardly think uh, anyone here, there may be one or two, have experienced what Paul went through. We've had our families to stand by us. We've had the sympathy of our wives We've had phone calls, emails from our friends at times of trial, and they're saying to us, we know what you're going through, and we believe in you. But we do remember times when we were let down by fellow Christians. (coughs) Uh, We're no greater than our Lord. Our Lord had no one at the end. They all forsook him and fled. Now, what is important 
about such a providence is that we should react as Paul reacted. You see the contrast in, in this section. It's a very interesting contrast with Alexander, the metal worker, that he had done Paul a great deal of harm, he says. And Paul's response to him was curt and fearful. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Verse 14. What the world sows is also what the world will reap if you choose to sow a great deal of harm against those who serve the gospel, you will then reap the reward of the wrath of a sin-hating God, a God whose people are the apple of his eye. But now he's moving on to the failure of Christians. Their cowardice, their lack of sensitivity and love for him. Their failure to stand by him at an hour of need. And what is important is that we notice how differently Paul responds to them. It is with these words, may it not be held against them. It is a great phrase, isn't it? That there was no apostolic bitterness or resentment at all. He was not allowing the grievous treatment of him to dictate now what his relationship, what his emotions and affections were towards his brothers and sisters. He wouldn't allow roots of bitterness to go down into his heart. He doesn't dwell on it. He's only using the memory of this painful letdown to underline to Timothy the reality of the one who never lets you down. The one who is always there alongside you, no matter how poor or weak your faith may be. And he will be there for Timothy too with the trials that face him in the future. I want to do we hurry over the phrase in the Lord's Prayer when we are told to say, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us, as, as we, we are doing, as we are forgiving those. We're forgiving those that have trespassed against us. That we are conscious that we do that. They've done hurtful things. They've failed to show any affection. Uh, They're continuing to show indifference towards us year after year. Are we failing to put to death resentment and coldness when we have a divine obligation while we live on this earth to love one another with pure hearts fervently will there be any bitterness when when we're in heaven towards anyone who is there with us not an atom we will be loving brothers and and sisters well why do we tolerate it in the body of Christ um, in this life 
Paul could still remember the sense of desolation as uh, the magistrates, the, the police put him in the, in the dock and he looked around. He looked around to see if, if there was a believer there who looked smiling at him. We know why you're here and we believe in you. We thank God for you in a glance saying all of that. And there was no one. Paul says, may it not be counted against them. All the disciples left Jesus alone in, in the garden. As the men with uh, swords and staves and torches came through the olive trees. And uh, they all ran away. And he was arrested. He was in the hands of the squaddies. And when he was there then, he heard his best friend telling a young member of the domestic staff, I, I didn't know that blasted Jesus. And yet on the cross then, a, a day later, he's praying for, for those people that so hurt him, that set up the crucifixion. He's praying for the scary disciples who ran away and for the swearing Peter and the squaddies who whipped him and hit him and spat at him and crucified him. The Lord Jesus has left us an example that we should walk in his steps. We are to live like Jesus. That's not a choice that you make if you profess him as your God and Savior. You live like Jesus by the power of the indwelling Jesus. Paul lived like him. And so there was an occasion when Paul stood alone in the midst of an immensely powerful and hostile segment of the world. And it would have meant so much to him, just that there was another Christian there. It's like I'm asked to uh, take a funeral service by somebody in the world with a vague connection, and none of you know, and I've, I've got to take that funeral service. And I, I say to one of you, uh, can you are you free that, that morning? Can, can you come there? For me to have a Christian there who hears what I say and supports me in what I say means an awful lot to me. There was no one there for Paul. There was no one praying for him at this time. May it not be counted against them. He prays sincerely. He prays without any resentment. He doesn't ask Timothy, uh, well, no, Timothy, just, uh, you know, pass on a message to them. Um, just one thing, uh, next time any of the brothers uh, appear in court, uh, don't do what you did when, when Paul was in court and conveniently failed to be there. No, you, you be there. There's nothing like that. You must do with your resentful, Recollections, what Shakespeare says in Hamlet, from the table of my memory, 
I'll wipe away all trivial fond records. I'll delete it. I'll delete the, the, the memory. I'll delete the resentment. Trivial fond records. We love to dwell on them, don't we? What Paul does in recalling to Timothy this experience of human rejection is to assure his young friend that blessing came to him at that time. Blessing came. In the absence of no human friend, there was a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The friend of sinners is at the right hand of God. The friend of sinners is is with us. Timothy knew it. Paul knew it in all its wonder. And Timothy, he wanted him to know it now with greater conviction than ever before. That every sinner who repents of his unbelief and turns and puts his trust in Jesus Christ and comes and gives himself daily then to this Savior, he will have the Savior with him. So I'm going to answer this question, what is in Christianity for me? That's the question then. In other words, you're saying to me, if I believe in God, will that mean a life of keeping rules and guilt and going to church every Sabbath and no fun? Is that what you're asking me to become when you're asking me to become Christians? Because that's what the devil is telling me. What's in it for me? And Paul tells us in this passage that I read in your hearing just what is in it for you if you turn from unbelief and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Firstly, the Lord Christ stands at our side giving us strength. He stands at our side. He's there strengthening us. He's talking here of his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the one he first met on a road, doing despicable things, going to persecute and kill Christians. And Jesus interrupted, perforated his life. And he met him. This Jesus, who had been born of the Virgin Mary, who lived for 30 years then in Nazareth. And then he preached and healed and pastored 12 disciples for three years before the system ganged up on him and arrested him and tried him and found him guilty of blasphemy and crucified him. But on the third day, he showed his power over death. He was stronger than the grave. And he appeared for 40 days then, Almost six weeks, he appeared to his disciples, all in different circumstances, in the upper room, in the garden, on a road, walking with them for hours, at the side of a lake, eating breakfast with them, individually, to 500 of them at the same time, and they took that memory of his reality for many, many years. And then he ascended to heaven 
where he lives as our mediator, our advocate with God the Father. He is our sovereign protector, unseen yet forever at hand. And the Bible is full of accounts of the way in which he protects his people. Jesus protects us. He's protected you all through your life. And he's brought you here tonight. You are the fruit of protecting mercy. The Lord was with Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who had protected her. He protected her when at different times her husband lied about her and said that she was his sister, not his wife, so that different kings had taken her into their harems. But the Lord protected her. He was with her. This Lord stood by his servants as they were wandering into a place they'd never been before, in utter uncharted territory, into a desert. And they were going to a land he'd promised them. They'd never been there before. And he went there with them. A pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, night and day, was always there, leading them on. He was protecting them. In the Old Testament, Elisha's servant had his eyes open when he saw the hills surrounded by enemies that wanted to kill them. And then he saw then uh, that there was the host of the Lord between them and themselves. The Lord was protecting Elisha and Gehazi. And then when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown into the burning fiery furnace, the Lord was at hand, there with them, walking in the furnace with them. When uh, Isaiah was commissioned in the temple, the Lord was with him. His train of glory filled the temple, strengthening him for the task. The Lord was with John the Baptist. The Lord wouldn't allow a page of Indian paper to come between him and the testimony and the lifestyle of John the Baptist. What Je John said, Jesus endorsed. There was none born of woman greater than John. He was the greatest of all the prophets. And Jesus insisted that John baptize him. He was never in the least ashamed of his rugged appearance, of his beard, and of his camel hair coat, and the leather thong that held his clothes uh, together. And he was never ashamed of his preaching. He stood at John's side. And when Peter made the astonishing claim that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then Jesus didn't say to him, Oh, no, 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 I'm just an ordinary bloke. Um, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm just a, a teacher, a sinner like you. Didn't say that. He stood by Peter's side and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus came to Samaria, and he stood by a woman, and he engaged in conversation with her, a much-married woman. And he told her all about herself, and he showed her he was the Messiah. What strength she received from him. He came, and he changed her. She became a strong woman. She went down, and she said, come and, and meet a man that told me everything I ever did. When a brother of two sisters 
died. He went there. He was at their, at their side at this time of need. And he strengthened them in their sorrow. When Stephen the martyr was dying, a hail of sharp rocks thudding into his ribcage and stomach and loins and head and eyes killing him. He saw Jesus standing there to welcome him and his face glowed like the face of an angel at the sight. Stephen was strengthened to die for Jesus. And this Lord Christ, then, he continues to be at the side of his people. What we see there all through the Old Covenant and through the New Covenant, we see throughout the days and months and years and millennia of the history of the church. Where is Jesus today? Well, he's at the right hand of God. We know where he is, and he is where two or three gather together in his name, because he is God. As to his body, he is there at the right hand of God. As to his spirit, he is here with us this evening hour. The gospel church is the church of Emmanuel, God with us. Of course, he is standing by us tonight in his spirit. But the spirit is not some poor substitute for the risen Christ. He is standing. The Spirit of Christ is standing in our midst in the full and glorious form of the presence of the Lord Jesus. That's the only explanation for the courage of the martyrs, of Cranmer holding the hand that once wavered and denied the gospel, holding it in the flames that it might perish first. What else can explain the faith of the covenanters hung, drawn, quartered for the truths they preached? What else did make James Patton survive in the New Hebrides when he dug two graves for his child and for his wife and then kept on living and preaching to the cannibals until there was a time when scarcely anyone on the island was not a Christian? What is the Lord Jesus doing to us and for us today? What is he doing? What is Jesus doing now? Why is he here with us this evening? Well, it is to do what Paul tells us here in this passage of Scripture. He is here to strengthen us. In other words, the implication is obvious. We're weak. We're just a a gang of weaklings that have been drawn to Jesus Christ for strength. And the strength of the Lord, we have found, is made perfect. uh, It's shown in all its perfection. When in our weakness we go to him and we cast ourselves upon him. We can only get by this week by the assistance that he gives us. That's that's the only way we can survive in this world. I'm telling you, Jesus is here. The Lord Jesus Christ, let me give him his title, is here to make you strong in faith 
and strong in love and strong in enduring and strong in forgiving. Well, how is it with you? You, You're here every Sunday night, most of you. Are you stronger in, in trusting? In patience? Are you stronger in showing mercy? Are you stronger in good works? Are you stronger in love? Since you meet with Jesus Christ here, Uh, Every Lord's Day, he's not here as the great entertainer. He is not here as a cushion for the laid-back church. He's not here to make us feel better. He is not here to stroke our affections and to provide a private comfort zone for inactive Christians and lazy congregations. He is here to make us strong carry our burden, to get under his easy yoke, to turn the other cheek, uh, to go the second mile, to keep forgiving 70 times 7, to bear the burdens of the weak. And if you are not getting stronger from, from being here and showing the strength of the new life of Christ in you, then you are getting weaker. You're not involved in the work. You're a spectator of the work. You know, by the time Saturday comes, I'm aching for Sunday and public worship and waiting on the Lord and renewing my strength so that I can run again and not grow weary and walk and and not faint. The second thing that Paul tells us here is that he must stand at our side so that our message might be fully proclaimed and that the world might hear it. That's why he's here. That's why he's with gospel churches now in China and South America and Europe and Africa and all over the world. He's with them that the message might be fully proclaimed. It can't be fully proclaimed without his presence. And the world can't hear it without him unstopping deaf ears. That's what he is saying here. This is what he says, verse 17. He's with us in outreach, and that great word, for strength in service to renew and refresh and motivate and inspire. He has to be with us for all of that. Our wits will take us nowhere. Our eloquence will take us nowhere. You think of the state of man. There is no way that sinners at enmity against God dead in their trespasses and sins, are going to become alive in Christ without the Lord Jesus Christ being present in a meeting and doing two things. Firstly, he stands at the side of the preacher as he proclaims the gospel. 
And he then opens the word of God to the hearers through the preaching of the gospel. He makes it alive. He makes it convicting. They can understand it. And they are humbled by it. And they are warmed by it and drawn by it. And then he also stands at the side of every one of the hearers. And he's opening the understanding of each one of them so that they receive the word of God. That's what happens when we, we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus and Jesus is, is there so that the word of God be, can be proclaimed effectually and we can hear it with understanding and the obedience of faith. Just imagine now that you had the privilege of hearing a, a great intellect like Albert Einstein lecture. You were there in Princeton in one of his uh, classes. And he was teaching the most profound things, the theory of relativity and so on. He was speaking there. And uh, also he, he came alongside you. And he knew what you didn't understand. And he explained it. And he made it clear. And he was here um, speaking of the depths and the heights and the east and west. And it was so immense. But then he was there and he was saying, you see, I mean this. And he was opening your understanding that you could grasp it. Well, this is what the Lord Jesus does. And everyone who is saved here tonight is saved because Jesus did that to every one of us. And that's Paul's experience. The, the greatest privileges he had when he was at Corinth, when he was at Philippi, when he was at Thessalonica. Any success he had, this was the reason for it. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Verse 17, that, that's it. For full proclamation of the gospel, for full reception of the gospel, the Lord must stand by me or the preacher and must stand by you or the congregation. It must be. When the Lord says, we're two or three uh, 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 gathered together in my name, I'm there. He's not there as a statue. He's there alive. In him is life. And he's there. He's dealing with this one and dealing with that one. And he's opening your understanding and he's speaking to you. And he's rebuking you and convicting you and instructing you in righteousness. And he's doing that. He's doing that. So it's not enough for a, a preacher to have correct exegesis and a right biblical theological understanding of the dynamics of redemptive history. It's a, it's a help. Let him have that. But you can have all of that. Unless Jesus stands among us in his risen power, there'll be no powerful preaching. And there'll be no life-changing response. And we must be afraid of that. As much as we fear bad exegesis then and sentimental stories. We must have him. We've got to have him. We pray on Tuesday. Lord be with us. As the word is declared. Be with us. 
be active, be busy, be involved with the congregation. And we must fear anything that grieves him and that slows him down and that sends him outside. The nearer the Lord stands to the preacher and the closer he stands by the sinner in the congregation then, the the greater the impact of the gospel is going to be. So, we cry to him for the strength-giving work that Paul talks about here, that he motivates us. So, he is the one who um, gave the Macedonia call to Paul to come over to Macedonia and help us. And he went across the sea to Greece, and he went to Philippi, and the Lord led him. And when he met in Philippi with a group of women who were interested and concerned about religion and met together for prayer, he was there, and he was with Paul as Paul spoke. He was standing with Paul, and then he was standing alongside Lydia, and he was opening Lydia's heart as... uh, Paul spoke, and she gave attention to the message. She wasn't thinking about trading in purple cloths and dyes and where she would be going this week and the profit she would be making. This was far more important than the daily duties that she was doing. So now then, okay, you understand where I'm taking you, where I've come from with this passage that's before us here, that uh, Paul is reminding Timothy of a great trial that he had to endure all by himself. He was facing the death sentence in court, and no Christian turned up to encourage him. No one came to his support. Everybody deserted him. But that loneliness meant that there was only one person who could be there, and that was the risen Christ the Son of God. And he didn't let him down. He was there. So the trial was immensely productive for Paul. He learned on that occasion, as never before, that the Lord is no man's debtor. He'll always be there for us. Paul, having to go it alone in Rome, was not then just some unfortunate accident being let down by uh, Christian selfishness. It was an occasion in which Paul had a new vision of the all-sufficiency of Jesus. He used Paul's aloneness to produce in the apostle greater peace, greater righteousness, greater confidence, a greater awareness that the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And then he wrote about it. He wrote about it to Timothy in Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit enabled him to write these things so that readers of the Bible, uh, 5,000 miles away in... uh, in Wales, 2,000 years later, might be encouraged to trust in the Lord 
and know of the Lord's presence and help with them. And the whole Christian community over the last two millennia have been helped in this same way. To trust in the Lord at, at, at all times. You trust him. You trust him. I've trusted him. Many of these people here have trusted him. You trust him. The Lord is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Are you trusting him? Everything else is a bruised reed. It'll break. It'll pierce you. But not this Jesus Christ. You can trust him. So, Paul's chief concern for the city of Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor preacher, was that in Ephesus, all the Gentiles might hear the the message. All the Gentiles. And that's then the same concern God has tonight. For the 20,000 people who live in Aberystwyth. That they might hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul's concern was for all the Gentiles. And when you hear a phrase like that, you don't think of the Pocot people or the Rendile people in the eastern and western fringes of Kenya. You think of Welsh Gentiles, people on our street, people in the hall of residence, the boy on the school bus, the woman in the next, desk in the open plan office, the man on the Shrewsbury train, all those people, some live within sight of this building and this Christian bookshop. All the Gentiles that surround us at this moment, and we know they have moral principles. They are moral principles and they are assumptions and they have hunches about the meaning of life. And they have certain attitudes to death and to God. And those attitudes are extremely varied. And they are perplexing, and they are complex. And often we feel we have no answer for some of the things that they say to us. Because they are very, very far away from the beliefs that we are instructed in here from Scripture, week after week. And going to them, and listening to them, and answering them, is quite daunting. We feel very inadequate. And every attempt seems to have its problems. But now we are told in this passage of Scripture that's before us tonight, God's answer to the problem we have of the Gentile unbelievers that surround us, that God is with us, that the Lord is with us, that he doesn't let our words fall to the ground in a little heap of ashes. But he is with us when we say a word for him, that he stands at our side and he gives us real strengths 
And one of the great reasons that Jesus died and Jesus rose again in the power of an endless life is that he should be engaged in this activity, in this community on the Irish Sea, to stand at our side and become our strength so that the Welsh Gentiles, in all their diversity and daunting differentness, that they could hear and they could come and they could understand the message we bring. There is much open hostility to Christianity today, and it has been the case then for the last 2,000 years. The last days are characterized by hostility to the church. Samuel Rutherford said centuries ago in Scotland, Christ no sooner picks up his trowel to build his church than men pick up their swords to fight him. So we must think of Christ's promise. He'll be there where two or three people are gathered in his name. And he's standing here and moving up the aisle and sitting next to you and nudging you and opening your ears and dealing with you personally now at this moment to give you strength. And that his presence with us is essential. And the invigorating work we do from his presence is indispensable to our growth and our usefulness and any impact we're going to make then in Aberystwyth in, in the future. Now I tell you this, and by contrast, I, I tell you about in the book of Revelation and one of the churches where Jesus is not in the midst, where he is not standing with us, but he's outside, and he's knocking at the door, and he's asking if we let him in. And he's promising that if we let him in, he'll come in and he'll eat with us. He'll have fellowship and communion with us. And he'll stand alongside us and he'll make us a strong church. Now, what keeps Jesus outside a congregation? It's a great question. What keeps Jesus outside? That he's in the street. He's in Alfred Place Street. That he's not in our midst. He's there, he's knocking. Well, greater love for the rivals that would take our affection is one reason he's outside. We love them more. Squabbles, jealousies, the lack of a warm, positive, attractive, joyful holiness, a quenching of the first love, self-satisfaction, the absence of a welcoming fellowship that would readily embrace the prodigal when he returns home. Zacchaeus would never feel at home in such a cold church. Mary Magdalene would never be comfy in such a cold church. Well, now let's look at ourselves. The possibility that Jesus is not with us. The horrific thought 
that we meet you and we meet with one another and we meet with a man in a pulpit and we hear his voice, but that's all. And Jesus isn't standing here and he isn't standing alongside you. Think of it. And so we, we pray in our hearts. Say, Lord, stand amongst us. Come back. We open the door to him. We, we welcome him in. We, we want him. We need him. We must have him. We're weak without him. We'll go away as weak as we came. Unless he is here strengthening us. We cry to God as Moses did at Sinai. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't carry us up from here. Don't carry us up. If we don't have the Lord standing in our midst and strengthening us. Well, why, why is it happening? Is there some Achan, Achan-like sin in the camp? Have we left our first love? Have we quenched the spirit by defiant unbelief? Well, then, let's open the, the, the doors of, of our lives to him. Say, come, come again, come, come, come into my life, come into my heart, come, come into our midst. Lord Jesus, we, this poor dying rate, it's no good. We must have you. We've got to have you with us. We need you. And we pray like the early church, uh, pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and so on. That great prayer of Ephesians 3. The last thing I want to say to you is the Lord stands at our side and he rescues us from every evil attack. That's the last thing he says here. Okay? Verse 18, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. He's looking back and he's conscious of the Lord's love and the Lord's protection and how he's helped him through his life. And he looks ahead in the future and it'll be just the same. He's been delivered from the greater perils, so the lesser perils then, Lord. The Lord will deliver him from them. He refers the greater peril to the lion's mouth. He's not... We know certainly he's not referring to the Colosseum and being thrown to the lions because he was a Roman citizen and no Roman citizen was allowed to be thrown to the lions. It's probably a reference to Caesar then. And and we know that because when the emperor Tiberius died in the year 37, he sent a coded message to uh, Herod. And the code was, the lion is dead. And Herod knew immediately that it was a reference to Caesar. So it might be here a reference to Caesar and his threats. But there were other threats that Paul faced that he can call the lion. Whatever it was, there was mighty deliverance. Mind-blowing deliverance akin to being thrown into a den of hungry lions and an angel closing every mouth and Daniel safe at the next day from any harm at all. It's like that. That's what Paul is referring to. And God so mighty in delivering him that then he would certainly rescue Timothy and every single Christian through his life, from every 
evil attack. You see what the deliverance is from. And we need to think about that and its implication. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. That we're not going to have accidents and car crashes or trip and fall and break bones or that our marriage is guaranteed survival and we won't go through a divorce or that our children won't be handicapped in some way or another or we won't die. There are no promises in the Bible that tell us that we will be saved from all or any of those pains. We are brothers and sisters with the world, with 20,000 aberrants with sinners in going through what they pass through also. We will have thorns in the flesh. But from every attack of evil that would destroy our souls and take us to hell, the Lord will rescue us. That's what he's saying. If Christ has died under our condemnation, if we have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, if God is working all things together for our good, then even the attacks of evil that we endure will work for our good. He won't allow us to perish, top lady. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. He will keep us during the attacks. When the fiery darts are thudding in and burning us, he'll protect us. When temptations come relentlessly and fiercely, he'll, well, he'll give us a revulsion for sin. He'll take away the opportunity of sinning. He'll make a way of escape. He'll disturb the assault. He'll humble us through a fall. And give us the blessedness of evangelical repentance so that we turn with new gratitude then to the constant forgiver. He rescue us from every evil attack. That's, that's what it says. Isn't that what the Bible says in front of you? God will rescue you from every evil attack. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, every evil attack for the next... 50, 80 years. He will rescue you from them all. When there's darkness all around, there'll be a little light. When all around your soul gives way, he then is all your strength and stay. He'll rescue me from attacks on my relationships, attacks on my finances, attacks on daily Delayed answers to prayer, attacks on my health or the health of my loved ones, whatever the attack. The attack may be God is the great lifeguard, God is the great security officer, He's the great keeper, He's the sovereign protector of every one of His people, of the most backsliding Christian. He's the protector of the weakest, newest lamb in the flock of Christ, the Good Shepherd, will protect them. He won't allow them to perish. He will, in fact, bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's what he assures us in verse 18. Though all in Asia Minor were forsaking Paul and his teaching, 
there were Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying that the resurrection was just a, a, a spiritual resurrection in the past and they weren't believing in the future resurrection of the body. And Timothy's enemies were patronizing him and uh, patronizing his youth. Oh, he'll grow up. He'll be wiser when he's older. Timothy was absolutely safe. He was as safe as houses, we say. All God's promises were his. God would keep all he had committed unto him against that day. We've been given by God the Father to Jesus the Son. There's been an eternal covenant and he's given this company of people more than any man can number. Our speck for the infinite God, but vast for us. And he's given them and Jesus has taken them. Thank you, Father, he says. I'll go into the world for them. I love them. I'll die for them. I'll rise for them. I'll pray for them. I'll take them every one safely. I'll present them to you. These are people in Aberystwyth who love me and serve me. And I've kept them. They weren't ashamed of the gospel. Not one will fail to be there. Not an empty place in the marriage feast. The one saved by the skin of their teeth, they'll be there. He'd begun a good work in Timothy. He doesn't do half a job. He'd complete it. Nothing was going to separate Timothy from the love of God in Jesus Christ. He's prayed, hasn't he? Remember John 17, the prayer of Jesus? Protect them by the power of your name. Protect them. Protect that with sinner, that with woman, that with little boy. Protect them by the power of your name, he says. You know, your wits aren't going to help you to survive. You'll have a lot of help from common sense. But uh, you need to run from all your hunches and ideas and fancies and make a great bonfire of them and burn them and flee to Jesus Christ and have him and know him. And there'll be a wonderful time when every cell in your bodies will be redolent with the righteousness of Christ. When you see him. And every brainwave will be characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Not one. Tarnished in any way by sin. That's what God will do. You set out on a voyage and the helmsman is Christ and he take you through every storm. And you, like Paul's ship full of passengers and soldiers and sailors, all arrived safely on Melita. Not one perished, just as God said, and he won't allow you to perish. To him be glory forever and ever. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? Not to me be glory, not to Marx, not to Freud, not to Darwin, not to the politician, not to the scientist, not to the millionaire, not to the psychiatrist, not to the matinee idol, not to the sportsman, the writer, the composer, the preacher. Be glory for ever and ever. To the Lord Jesus.
Only the Lord Jesus, the great teacher, the one whom the winds and waves obeyed, the one who turned water into wine, the healer of every disease, the one who raised the dead, the one who loved and was loved by the common people who heard him gladly. To him be glory in the 21st century, the 22nd, the 23rd, if we are to be delayed again from his appearing. Let's cast our crowns before him. We've had crowns, we've had awards, we've had recognition, we've had appreciation, we've had thanksgiving. It's a crown. But when we see him, we'll cast it before him. This great saviour who rescues us from all danger. And he is the reason we're in heaven. It's all of the grace of, of Jesus Christ. So let's say it. To him be glory forever and ever. Let's say it from our hearts. And live by it. And with our latest breath, magnify and glorify his matchless name. That lasts like the sun. It shall. Because he's taking us to his eternal kingdom. You, you come with us now. You come with us. Come with us to the eternal kingdom. Don't, don't stay away. You, you come. You come. It's a movement of your soul and your heart. As the Holy Spirit applies his word to your life. And you, you come. You, he's drawing you to himself. You come to Jesus Christ. You come just as you are. You come. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word. Magnify Christ in our midst. And enable us to love him and serve him with newly ransomed energy and power that's come from the throne of God and the Lamb. Jesus, stand among us. Week by week, stand in this pulpit. Stand alongside every pew and instruct every heart and life and save people. We pray, merciful God, oh, hear our prayers and give honor to him who is so dishonored in our cruel and dark generation and make us those unashamed of this gospel of the living, present Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.